Awesome. Here's what I want you to do while I get this other microphone on real quick. I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them one movie that everyone else in the world has seen but that you have not seen yet. All right? One movie that might kind of shock your friends that, to know you haven't got it. Check, check one, check one, two, check, check, check one, two. All right. How's that? Okay. All right, go ahead. Eyes up here. Halt, cease, desist. Okay, somebody, uh, Somebody give me one that you were just shocked by, like the person next to you told you and you could not believe it. Well, give me one that you were shocked by. Star Wars. Star Wars. Who? Rachel Madden has not seen any Star Wars? Holy cow. Okay. All right. Give me, give me another one. Lion King. Haven't seen Lion King? Wait, wait. The, re the, the live action or the animated? Both haven't seen either. Holy cow! Okay. Abby hasn't seen Twilight. Abby has not seen Beauty and the Beast. Who said Twilight? <laughs> hey, congratulations, Sydney. Hey, no, I'm impressed with you. <laughs> All right. Okay. So here's the deal. Uh. Sadly, I have to admit to you that if this were some kind of competition, I would probably win. Uh, and that is because I do not see, uh, I don't see a lot of movies. Like, like maybe, maybe I go to the theaters once or twice a year, maybe. Um, and, and even at home, don't watch a lot of movies. And when I say I don't see a lot of movies, like I mean like, like the cultural touchstones, the ones that like everyone has seen. I have not, I have never seen Avengers Endgame, all right, I know, I know, listen, hey, nobody, nobody spoil it, nobody spoil the ending, okay, I still don't, <laughs> come on, I'm trying to, hey, this is supposed to be a safe place, you guys, all right, listen, I have, <laughs> I will get to it. As soon as I watch Age of Ultron and <laughs> Infinity War, um, I have never seen I have never seen a single Harry Potter movie. I, I have never seen a single Transformers movie. I have never seen a single Fast and Furious movie. I have, <laughs> and I don't. <laughs> come on, somebody's giving me grief over here. All right, here's the thing. I don't see a lot of movies, and the reason why is not because is not because I don't like movies, and it's not because I don't want to watch movies. I'd I'd love to see Avengers Endgame someday, uh, but but the issue is that my wife does not like watching movies. I know, I know. So and you guys booed me, and I am yeah. Uh, 
the issue is like, and it's not like she doesn't, she'll tell you. It's not that she doesn't like watching movies. It's just like whenever the opportunity is there, she just doesn't, like what she'll say, like we'll get the kids down or whatever and, and we'll finally have some kind of quiet and a moment where we can pull up Netflix and do that. And she always, it's always kind of the same thing. She says like, I don't have like the emotional or mental like energy to invest in an hour and a half movie right now or a two hour movie, right? I don't know if you've ever been there. Um, so she's like, I don't really, let's just watch a show. Now, here's what always happens. We watch a show, and then we watch like five episodes, so we could have just watched a movie anyway, right? But that happens all the time with her. So I don't get to it. Now, I've seen the animated ones, right? Moana, Frozen, Frozen 2, all those things, right? I have kids, so I've seen all the animated ones. I've seen animated ones you guys don't even know exist, all right? Because we do family movie night every Friday, and there are only so many kids' movies on Netflix. And so, like, you get to a point where you're watching, like, uh, poorly dubbed Polish animation, right? And, and it's like, so I've seen some terrible movies, all right? But good movies, I haven't seen very many. The, the one place where I can actually get to watch a movie that I want to watch is on airplanes. It's like the only time, in the summers, I do a little bit of traveling, and when I do that, that's the one time I get to watch movies, which means, actually, this um, kind of huge bummer is that there are a number of movies that I've only seen half of. Um, because, right, if, if the movie is longer than the flight itself, or if, even worse than that, what, what, what's actually the more likely scenario is it's a three-hour flight and I spend an hour and a half just scrolling through the little screen there trying to make a decision, right? And then I click it and I hear, ladies and gentlemen, we'll begin our descent to Dallas in a moment. And I'm like, dang it. So, like, The Martian. I cannot wait to see the end of The Martian. I started it, started it back in 2017 on a flight, okay? And I'm one of these days, it's going to be good. I can't wait. I hope I can remember what happened so that the twist will still like get me whenever it happens. I hope I can remember the first part. Um, this is the bummer of my life that I don't see a lot of movies and the ones that I see, I only see halfway, which is no way to watch a movie. Uh, it's, almost, it's almost worse than actually not seeing it all to just get to see, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not getting emotional over that, I promise. This just had something in my throat. Um, to only get to see the beginning of a movie. That's, that's not how movies were meant to be watched. Um, to only ever read the first half of a book is not the way that books were meant to be read. If you only ever get half the story, you're missing out. Today, tonight, what I want to do is tell you the rest of the story. Um, Many people love the passage that we got to read last week. Last week is, is for many, a, like a top 10, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. If you weren't here last week, you need, to, you need to go back and just read through that one. I'll give you the Cliff Notes version. Paul describes in Ephesians 2, chapter 1, verses 10, how each and every one of us were at one point dead in our sins. That is because we were made to know God and to love God and to be in relationship with Him. The moment we chose to sever our ourselves from him through our sin to push back against him and say, I don't want you and I don't want your life. I want to live my own. We began to die inside. A part of us dies. Spiritually, we are dead. And, and Paul says, this is the condition of every human being when they have separated themselves from God. They are um, lost without him. They are dead. They are objects of wrath. And then there's this key turn in verse four, I believe it is, which starts with these two words, but God. 
But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, because of the great love that he had for you, made you alive in Christ while you were still dead in your sins. That is, before you did anything to earn it, before you did anything to make him like you, before you did anything to deserve it, he already loved you. And he loved you so much that he sent Jesus to make the spiritually dead people like you and I alive in Jesus. Paul says, this is not your doing. You didn't do anything for this. It is by grace that you have been saved. Something you did not deserve, something I did not deserve. And and this text is one of the most beautiful ones, and people rightfully love it. But the thing is, if you just stop there, you're only getting half the story. That's where many of us often stop, but that's not where Ephesians 2 stops. That's not where the gospel stops. And so tonight, I want to tell you the rest of the story. I don't want you to have to stop partway in. I don't want you to walk halfway up the mountain and then turn around and enjoy the view enough that you decide to go home. I want you to see the view from the top. And so we're going to march through that. I want to kind of tell you, uh, you may have had, did we pass out the little cards? Do people have cards, little pieces of paper? We do not have those. All right. Um, those will be coming around here in just a second. Um, we gave these to you uh, one of the first nights when we jumped into Ephesians, kind of t- walking you through our interpretive process. And our interpretive process starts in three steps. You'll see it on the card as it comes around, that we start first in this little box on the left. And, uh, and, and in that little box on the lower left-hand corner, we call that the aim, the author's intended meaning. That is, when we read the text, we want to try our best to get an idea of what the author meant when he said it, what it meant in that context and in that time. So we explore the background and we explore the text to be able to get those things. When you get that card, go ahead and just write in that bottom left corner, aim, all right? This is what Paul meant, okay? And then, once we've got that figured out, we march up to that top half, which is to timeless principles. That, are, that is, these are the truths that apply to anyone, whether they are living in Ephesus in A.D. 62 when this was written, or they live in Stillwater in 2020, or they live in, live in Greece in the year 1300. These truths apply to everyone. So you can write timeless principles up there. And then once we figure those out, we move down into this section that says today's application. That is, how does this affect the way we live today in America, in the 21st century? How do I live my life as a result of this text? Well, our text tonight, Ephesians 2, chapter, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22, actually lends itself really well to seeing how this process works. So tonight, I want to kind of actually walk us through this just so you can see and get a better glimpse of how we're studying and interpreting the Bible each week when we do this. Um, so you can kind of go through, and I'll give you a few key points, but as, you're re- as we're reading through, if there's something that sticks out to you that goes, I think this is what Paul's trying to communicate, write it there in that bottom left-hand corner. I'll give you a few as we jump in, but we are in Ephesians to starting in verse 11, if you want to turn there. Here's what Paul says. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without Christ, excluded from the citizenship of Israel and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Now, a little bit of background, a little bit of context for you. 
in the biblical worldview, especially according to the Jewish people, which is what Paul is at this time, and which is what most of the Jewish authors are, there were basically two major people groups that existed in this world at the time. They were the Jewish people, and they were the descendants of Abraham. And all the way back in your first book of the Bible, in Genesis 12, God calls this man named Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to come with me. I want you to follow me. And if you will follow me, and if you will trust me, then I'm going to make a special covenant with you, and you and your descendants will be my people, and I will be their God. And, and we will um, walk together in relationship and I will bless you and I will help you to know me and help you to follow me and all of those things. And this was Abraham's sense. The, the mark of that, it's a little odd, it's a little weird, I admit, um, was circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant at that time. And so um, they would call themselves sometimes the circumcised and everyone else not that. Now the other people group was everybody else. Anybody who was not Jewish, anybody who did not belong to God, anybody who did not know the true God of the Bible, the the God uh, who created all things, everyone else who operated in um, worshiping idols and pagan sacrifices and doing all of these things, that was everyone else, and they were called Gentiles. The Ephesians, the people that Paul is writing to, they fit in the everyone else category. They did not know the living God before Paul showed up. They did not know that they could belong to a God who had actually loved them as a father. That was a completely new concept. They were always considered on the outside of God's plan and his promises. They were the people that was not allowed to be in on this thing. That was them before Paul showed up. And Paul says, I want you to remember that. And there was this deep divide that sat between the Jewish people and the Gentile people. So deep was this divide and so real was the tension between these two people groups that many like good Jewish people wouldn't even share a meal with a Gentile, wouldn't even enter into the home of a Gentile for fear that they might get like the the Gentile sinfulness or dirtiness on them. And, And there's some of this separation that was kind of okay and to be expected. Because you see the Gentile people, as I mentioned, they did a lot of things that were Um, that were wrong, that that the Jewish people had committed themselves not to do. They weren't going to worship idols, which means they're not going to hang out with Gentiles who are sacrificing to idols and then eating that kind of food at those feasts. They're not going to hang out with Gentiles who are engaged in all kinds of sexual sin and sexual immorality when they've made a vow that they're going to live a life of holiness and purity. And so there are some things that were natural between them. That, that, that were even okay that, that caused there to be a separation. But then there was this other thing that kind of happened inside of them is this, this worldly human tendency that kind of sits in all of us. This tendency in every single human to, to naturally divide between us and them. To put people into categories and to find myself lined up with all the people who are like me and to enjoy being around those people, and then to take all the people who are not like me and put them in another category. And, and, the, and the tendency when we divide between these is always to begin to, over time, if our hearts are unchecked, we naturally begin to distrust the people who are in the them category, to fear the people who are in the them category. And, and, and often that leads to even a hatred or a disdain of, because they're not like us because they don't get it like us, because they're less than like we are. It's a means in many people's hearts of allowing themselves to feel better about who they are by pushing down on someone else. I can justify myself. I can make myself worth feel better if I can tell myself that you're worse than me. 
But this was never God's plan when he called the people of Israel. This was never God's design that there would be this level of divide that causes a disdain or a hatred against another group. And this is not how God will leave it. Right here in the middle of the first century, right here in the middle of one of the greatest cultural, religious, social divides in all of human history, Paul writes these words in verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, everything in this text tonight hinges on that verse right there. But now, you who are far away have been brought near. This is, by the way, the fundamental problem of every human being and every, every human heart is that you and I are far away from God. That our sin makes us far away. And this is, therefore, the fundamental problem behind every other human uh, ailment or difficulty. And anything that exists in the world, racism or injustice or hatred or violence or selfishness, all of that is a result of this fact that we are far from our home. And when we sever ourselves from God, we naturally begin to sever ourselves from what we're supposed to be and from other people around us. And Paul then also says, though, if this is the universal problem, then the universal solution is this, that you have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. And actually, this is actually the, if I were to give you your first little aim, your first major point that Paul is trying to make in this text, it's this, that the blood of Jesus brings everyone back near to God. Everyone who will place their faith in Him, no matter how far they are, everyone can be brought back to God through the blood of Jesus. Paul continues, though, and stresses a new section that you may have overlooked before. Verse 14, For He is our peace, who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in His flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this, sorry, he did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross by which he put the hostility to death. And this is the part of the story that we often leave out, and that's this. Here's actually the second key thing that you can write down, that Jesus' death does not just reconcile human beings to God. It reconciles them to each other. That's the part of the gospel that we often leave out. It's the part that we overlook, that it was not just meant, although the most important part is that Jesus brings us back to the Father, but it was not simply meant to do that, but also to reconcile human beings back to one another. If you were to travel to Jerusalem during this time when Paul's writing these words, what you would find is that the temple itself in Jerusalem was built up on this, it was called the Temple Mount, and then there was this elevated platform up on the mount itself on which the actual structure sat. And the temple faced out towards the east, and if you were to go out from those temple doors, the entrance there, there were a series of different courts that appeared right there in front of the temple. The first court was the court of the priests. And as the name suggests, it was a place where only the priests could go. It, it was the actual courtyard where the sacrifices were being made, where some of the incense was being burned and all those practices were taking place. The court of the priests and only those in the priests could do that. And then if you were to go a, a little further out and a few steps down, you would come to what was known as the court of Israel. 
And the court of Israel was the place where all the Jewish men could come to the temple to worship the living God because God was said to dwell, was said to be dwelling there in the temple. And the court of, uh, or the, the Jewish men could come into that court, but no further. And there they could pray and there they could worship and there they could bring their sacrifices to the priest. And if you would go out a few steps more and a little bit further down, you would come to the court of women. This is where many of the offerings were taken was there in the court of women. And this is where all the Jewish women were allowed to come to Jerusalem and come to the temple and worship God there before, every, uh, before him in Jerusalem every year. And then if you were to go many steps down, 21 steps down, and much further out, you would come to this outer court that was known as the court of the Gentiles. And that court was divided from all the other courts by this five-foot-thick wall. And all along those walls sat these signs that were kind of hung in various places. In 1871, we actually, archaeologists dug up one of those walls and discovered one of those signs. It was written on there in both Greek and in Latin, these words, Let no foreigner enter within the parapet and the partition which surrounds the temple precincts. Anyone caught violating will be held accountable for his ensuing death. In other words, if you cross this line, you try to come any closer to this temple, any closer to this God, any closer to this people group, and you will have yourself to blame for the death that we bring onto you. It was a very strong signal, a very strong sign to them of simply this, you have no part in us, and you have no part in our God. No matter how much they might want to, no matter how much you might be convinced that he's the real God, no matter how much you might want to be a part of this, you have no part in him. If you read in the verses we just read, verses 14 through 16, Paul says these words, that in Jesus, he has torn down the dividing wall of hostility. And I can't prove it, but I think that Paul has that actual image in his mind when he writes it. That this giant wall standing between everyone else in the world, the Ephesians and everyone else, and the people of Israel and the God they worship, that that has been torn down now in Jesus. He has taken these two people groups who could not be further apart, who could not be more different, who could not have more tension between them, and he has not just made them equal before God. No, he has made them one. He's made one new person out of them. That's what he says over and over again. He says, so, he says that God did this so that he might create one new man and so that he might reconcile both to God in one body. Listen to this. The intention when Jesus died on a cross for you was never just to save you. It was never just to give you a personal relationship with him. Both of those things are real. Both of those things exist, but he wanted more for you and for the rest of the world. Read on in verse 17. He came, that's Jesus. Jesus came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So here we see that the point of Jesus' death was not just to make Gentiles Jewish. No. Paul says that actually Jew and Gentile alike both needed the gospel. Jesus came to proclaim the gospel of peace to those who were far and to those who were near, the Jewish people, the people of Israel. They both needed him. In fact, there was more than one barrier sitting up on the Temple Mount back in A.D. 62. 
There was not just that big giant wall there between the Gentiles and everyone else, but if the priests were to go inside the temple itself, what they would find is this giant thick curtain hanging from top of the, uh, the ceiling all the way down to the bottom that separated them and the rest of the world from what was called the Holy of Holies the place where God was said to dwell, the place where Yahweh, the one true living God, dwelled there among, above the Ark of the Covenant, and no one could go in there except for the high priest, and only one time a year, and he, and he went in there only with the sacrifice of a bull to make himself pure to go in there. But the Gospels tell us that when Jesus died on a cross, that that dividing wall came down as well. That in the moment that Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished, that the curtain ripped from top to bottom, proving to the world that there is no longer any barrier between us and God. That everything that kept us apart from him is now gone because of what Jesus has done. From here, Paul will go into a series of metaphors describing our new identity. Here's what he says in verse 19. So then, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So he lists off all these different kind of word pictures describing what the Ephesians now are, what these Gentile people now are. He says they are fellow citizens. They are members of God's family. They are a building of God and not just any building. They are the temple, the holy temple, the place where he dwells. And what we see in these passages is two things. First, that my identity as a Christian is derived first and foremost from Jesus and not from my race and not from my class and not from my social status or from anything else. You are a citizen of Christ's kingdom. You are a member of Christ's family. You are a temple in which Christ dwells. Do you notice that? He keeps pointing all of our references back to who Jesus is. The second thing we see in this, though, is that my identity is not individual. It's corporate. That I am with you a member of God's family. I am with you the temple of the living God. Here's the third thing I would give you to write down in that aim section. One of the things Paul is trying to communicate is this, that my identity is bound together with my brothers and sisters, and it is defined by Jesus. My identity is bound together with brothers and sisters, and it is defined by Jesus. That is reality. It's it's not a matter of if I will be unified with you or not. It's a matter of whether I will live out the reality that is already true, what Jesus has already done for us. Um, Whether I see it or not, whether I realize it or not, I am unified with my brothers and sisters of a different race. My black brothers and sisters and my Asian brothers and sisters and my Latino brothers and sisters. Whether I believe it or not or want to believe it or not, I am unified with brothers and sisters of a different political persuasion. I mean, Jesus makes it so by his death. And so it is true, and it is there for us to live out. We're going to take a break for just a minute, and then we'll come back and unpack how we live this out now. Where's the mic? Somewhere. There it is. All right. Okay, so we've got some... uh, 
some really amazing truths that come out of Ephesians 2. The question is, how do we move those truths into our context today? Uh, and so when, whenever we're doing this, the first thing we want to do is r- right there on your chart, we want to try to find some of the timeless principles that come out of those things. When I say principles, I'm talking about what are some of the commands that this scripture has for all people? What are, what are some of the truths that we ought to cling to or live by that are said in this text? And, and of course, by timeless, I mean that they would apply to all people in all places at all times. So, for example, in A.D. 62, when Paul is writing these words, one of the big issues and one of the big reasons he writes this is that he wants Jewish and Gentile Christians to be able to live together in unity. That these two people who stand far apart need to be able to come together because they are one in Christ. That's not so much an issue for us today. And so we're not, we're not trying to figure out how do we achieve Jew-Gentile uh, unity together in our church today. But there is still a timeless principle that we can grab from that, and that is true for all times and all places. Here it is. Uh, timeless principle number one, Christians should reflect the oneness that Jesus has given us. So when Jesus died, he created a oneness between you and I, and now it is our job to live that out, to reflect that. And if you're Jew or Gentile, or if you're you're Roman or barbarian, or wherever you live in whatever place, that applies today to you. Um, Jesus has made us one body by his death. We live like that's true, and we ought to be known by that. Um, that's actually, that's the one we're going to unpack here in just a little bit. But maybe uh, I want to just give you a couple other kind of timeless principles from this text. And by the way, these three that I'm going to give you aren't the only ones in here. You could find some more from this, but the, here's just three. Here's another thing that we learn from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. There is no such thing as being too far from God. There's no such thing as being too far from God because if there was, then the Ephesians would probably qualify. Idol worshipers who knew nothing of the Scriptures, who knew nothing of the true God, who lived in constant sin, and Paul says, you're not too far. Paul himself, actually, would probably be quick to say, I fit in that category. If there's such a thing as too far, even though in a lot of ways Paul would be considered near God, he was this Jewish scholar who knew the scriptures front and back and he was zealous for it, but in, in so many ways his heart was cold and hard to the true things of the true God, um, so much so that he hunted down those who worshiped Jesus, that he had them put to death, that he had them put in prison. That's why he'll say in the very next chapter of this that I am the least of all Christians. Paul says, if there's anyone who's too far from God, It's me, and I am living proof that there is no such thing, that the blood of Jesus, no matter how far you have wandered, no matter how far you have gone, the blood of Jesus is always big enough to bring you back to Him. There is no failure too deep. There is no mistake. There is no rebellion too large that the blood of Jesus cannot cover and reconcile us back to the living God. Third timeless principle that we gain from this text, as Christians, our identity comes from Jesus and His family, not from anything else. As Christians, our identity comes from Jesus and His family, not from anything else. We are not defined by our heritage. We are not defined by our past achievements. We are not defined by our present failures. The mistake you made last week that you still feel guilty about, you are defined by Jesus and Jesus alone if you, are put your, if you have put your faith in Him. You are defined as a part of His family. You are defined as a part of His kingdom. 
You are defined as a part of His temple. You are in Christ, and that's who you are. And that's true whether you're reading this in A.D. 62 from the city of Ephesus or whether you're sitting on a couch in Stillwater, Oklahoma, or whether you're sitting somewhere in Athens or Cairo or wherever you are. That is a timeless principle that is true at all times, in all places, for all people when they place their trust in Jesus. So the question now is, how do we move from the timeless principles to 2020? How do we take the truths that we read from this text and we move them into our context today? And I want to go back to that first principle there that I just read to you, um, that as Christians we are to reflect the oneness that God has given us. And I want to just give you two points of application. We're not going to take long at all. Most of our work was up front today. Um, So we're not going to take very long at all. I just want to unpack a couple points of of application for you. If we are to reflect the oneness that Jesus gives us, then here's the first, first point of application in that bottom right corner. Then you ought to commit yourself to the body of Christ. We talked about this a couple weeks ago when we talked about commitment to community and making life in the body a priority. This idea that Many of us today have taken Christianity and they've turned it into this individualized spirituality that is primarily concerned with my own relationship with God and how I can enjoy a good life here and how I can go to heaven after I die. But, but what we mention there, for those of you who weren't here, is that that's not the way you were made to live. That you were made in the image of God and because God is a God who is always moving out from himself, who is always moving towards people in love, that you were designed to do that as well. And if you take something as critical as your faith and you use it to only turn in on yourself, then you're missing out on your design and you're missing out on the, the very faith that God designed. Ephesians 2 makes this clear that Jesus did not just come to redeem Drew. He came to redeem a people. He did not just come to redeem me. He came to redeem a church. He did not come to redeem just you. He came to redeem a body, a bride, of which you get to be a part, of which I get to be a part of, which is an amazing blessing. And why would I ever rob myself of that? One of the ways that I reflect the oneness that God has given me with you is by being with you is by associating with you, is by living life with you and praying for you and knowing you and attending church with you and those things. That's how oneness is shown in that. Second big point of application is that if Christ has made us one, then you need to love your brothers and sisters who are different than you. We live in a deeply, deeply divided world today. Uh, if you watch the news, if you get on the internet at all, you know that America right now is largely defined along lines of race and politics and culture and even what to do about coronavirus. That we find ourselves fighting about all of those things all the time. And like I said, this, this shouldn't surprise us because of what we mentioned earlier, that when you are severed from God, that it slowly but surely begins to sever you from other people, that you naturally turn on yourself. And so hostility and anger and divisiveness are the natural result of those things. But here's the thing, that's not new. Like, 2,000 years ago, people lived in a deeply divided world. 
And one of the things that makes the gospel so beautiful is that it is not just here to reconcile people together, but it reconciles people who would never naturally fit together. It reconciles people, people that you would look at and say they have no business being friends. It takes those people and it makes them family. People who it doesn't make sense for them to be long to one another. People who it doesn't make sense for them to love each other. That's the kind of people that the gospel brings together. Jews and Gentiles. And it's not because when we become Christians, all of our differences disappear. When I become Christian, I don't lose my racial uh, identity. When I become a Christian, uh, it doesn't mean that I automatically agree with you about whether we should wear masks or not. When I become a Christian, it doesn't mean all of our political differences go away. What happens, though, is that we establish a connection that runs deeper than all of our differences. Actually, we don't establish it. Jesus did it for us. That no matter what you believe about politics, no matter what your race or class is, you and I, if you are a follower of Jesus, you and I have something that runs deeper than all of those things, and that is that both of us belong to Him. And therefore, according to Ephesians 2, we both belong to each other. Take race for an example. Race is one of the easiest things in the world to divide over because the difference between myself and a person of a different race is so obvious and so upfront. And so it's easy for my brain to automatically go, not like me. And to look at other people who are of my race and go, like me. That happens without even thinking about it. And it's also a very easy thing to divide over in this country because our country has such a deep history of woundedness and of pain and of injustice. And so it's hard for us to even talk about without people getting defensive and without tension starting to rise and with people, without people starting to get angry and accuse people of different things. But this should not be the case in the church because the gospel changes that. The gospel, and not just the how to get to heaven gospel, but the whole gospel. The whole gospel that this Bible describes tells me that every human being is made in the image of God and therefore they are worthy of love and honor and dignity because they bear the image of God. That same gospel tells me that when God came to Abraham back in Genesis 12 and said, I want you to be my people and your descendants will be my people and I will be their God. In that same chapter, God says, and I want to use you to bless the whole world. That from the very beginning when God called the people of Israel, his plan was to bring everybody into this. And that gospel tells me that when I am reconciled to God through Christ, that I am also reconciled to everyone else who places their faith in Him. That gospel tells me that at the end of time, people from every tribe and tongue and nation will stand before the Lamb and worship Him together. That gospel changes me all the way through because it moves me to be a different kind of person. It removes the hostility that stands between me and others. It tells me that if God loves people so much that he is willing to die for them, that I can love them in the same kind of way. And it also tells me that I am one body with my brothers and sisters. And so 1 Corinthians 12 describes this. If I am a part of you, and if you are a part of me, then that means that your hurts become my hurts. And that your joys become my joys. And that your concerns become my concerns. And that's true on a small scale. 
that's true that, that I ought to know Zach so well, that I ought to know Abby so well, that I ought to care about them. And we're not all going to be best friends. That's true. But, but in this church, that when I know that Zach is hurting, that I hurt alongside of him. That when I know that Abby is rejoicing because I love my sister, that I ought to be able to rejoice alongside of her. And I feel what she feels, just like if you stub your toe, the rest of your body feels that, feels that pain. We feel those things together that we care about each other, that we walk alongside of each other, that we pray for one another. That's true on the small scale like that. It's also true on the large scale. And that means that when my brothers or sisters of a different race speak of a pain or injustice that they are experiencing, before I jump straight to questioning whether that pain is legitimate or not, I listen. I'm not saying... Um, it means before I start to ask questions about whether they're expressing this in the proper way, and maybe there's a better way to go about this, before I do any of that, I stop and I show love and concern. And that doesn't mean that there's never a place for asking questions like that. That doesn't mean that there's never an opportunity to talk about those things, but I want to be the kind of brother or sister who before I express distrust that I'm always willing to show active concern because a part of the body that I am a member of hurts. And I want to be willing to hurt with them even as we begin to talk through what this looks like and how we move forward together. And this doesn't just go for people of different races. This goes for people who think different than, differently than me about polit- politics. This goes for the guy or the girl who comes to the table that rubs me the wrong way. That just annoys me. That I find myself rolling my eyes and trying to kind of avoid and turn away from every time they come around. The gospel does not leave me the option to neglect my brothers and sisters because I don't like them. The gospel does not leave me the option to, uh, to be dismissive of people whose personalities just butt up against mine. The gospel does not leave me the option to remain bitter against a sister who has gossiped about me when she comes and confesses that, to remain angry at a brother who has hurt me for some reason. The gospel doesn't leave me that option because we know that I am one who has sinned greatly against Jesus and he always offers grace to me. And so therefore I can be the kind of person who offers grace and who offers mercy to those who wrong me, whether or not I agree with you, whether or not we are the same, we are both sinners who have been saved by grace. We are one in Christ. Jesus has made that so. He says in John 13, 34, this, by this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. This is the mark of what it means to belong to me, Jesus says, is that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And so what we want to do tonight is is give us an opportunity to think and reflect on that. Some of you may not actually be in this camp quite yet. You you may hear these things and go, man, this is wonderful. I wonder if anybody's going to like, is this one of those things where you're only supposed to love Christians and not non-Christians? No, no, no. The gospel is bigger than all of this and, and calls all of us. Jesus calls all of us to love all people and, 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 and he invites everyone in. And so if you're in here tonight and you're asking this question, is this something that I could even belong to? The answer is an easy yes. There is no such thing as being too far away from God. The answer is yes. And if you are here tonight and you are a believer and you're a follower of Jesus, 
you are invited to not just love him well, but to also love the brothers and sisters around you well, even the ones who've hurt you, even the ones that you stand kind of in butt heads against at times. And we are called to love those who are different than us, even when we can't quite agree with them. So what we're going to do is, and we can stand and pass these out, we're going to pass out this prayer tonight, actually a couple different prayers for church unity and for justice. And then together, Scott is going to lead us in a time of praying. If those who have those could go ahead and pass those out. And then once everyone has received that, Scott's going to lead us in a time of praying through that together.